0: This evening's Bible reading comes from Romans chapter 12 and it's the first two verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's a short reading after we've had these long slabs of Esther, isn't it, uh, over the past weeks? Um... I'm really looking forward to turning to Romans. Um, If if you are new with us, you may think we're like going back to Romans if we're picking up at chapter 12, but I don't think we are. I I remember preaching on Romans here about eight years ago, but my guess is there hasn't been a continuous series that we're picking up on again. We're diving in at chapter 12. Uh, That's okay, though, um, because of the way Romans works. I'm going to say more about that as we go on but so don't don't be dismayed you're not kind of coming in after you know many years of preaching on Romans and you'll never but this is actually a great place to pick up. Um, I've been thinking uh, that's actually yeah that's the graphic we did in the weekly email uh, it it, it was written as a call to church community uh, which was a mistake because it sounds totally lame, even though it's true, but we've, we've gone with the call for Christian, to Christian community, which I just think sounds better. Anyway, not a big deal, but there you go. Let's begin. I've been thinking uh, a, a little bit lately about the idea of vision and vision statements. Don't, don't freak out if you hear that and if you're worried about vision statements. Um, a vision statement is, or any kind of vision for an organization, is, is meant to be a kind of picture of the future Uh, or of the task that lies before an organization or or a church, Uh, a picture that is compelling, uh, that gets you excited, and that energizes people to get to work. Statements like this can work at different levels. Uh, We have an overall vision statement for our church. You might know it, you might not. It is whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Are uh, image is taken from 2 Corinthians 3. Um, I need, probably need to talk more about that vision statement, but um, it can also be useful to have a kind of lower level vision or a more specific vision. And I've been starting to think and talk to people at church about what the next three years or so might look like for this church. And that's a conversation about kind of vision that I'm, I'm hoping to continue. Let me begin today, though, by asking you a different question. Do you have a vision for your life, for what you'd like your life to be about? And if you're a Christian, for your Christian life, your life as a Christian, do do you have a picture of the task and the goal you're headed towards that is compelling, that you find exciting and energizing? I think sometimes we don't. Sometimes, actually, we, we couldn't really say, if we were asked, what the Christian life was about, not in a kind of captivating way. Imagine somebody asks you, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? You know, what's the deal? What's it all about? What would you say? Would you have a good answer? Would you, would you be able to say something that grips you and that was compelling to someone who heard it? Or would you say something like, oh, well, I go to church on Sundays and I mean, it's quite cold, but um, you know it's good, and there's some nice people, and I help with the welcoming, and I'm in a prayer triplet, although, to be honest, we haven't met for a little while. It's not wildly compelling, that description, is it? Um, Maybe you'd do better, maybe you wouldn't. But whatever the case, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, can help us definitely to do better. Because what we get in this part of Romans, which, as I said, we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks, what we get is a kind of vision for Christian life and Christian community. And it's a powerful, compelling picture of what being a Christian and what being a church is meant to be about. I hope it will be energizing for all of us. And Paul begins with a real bang. In the first two verses, he paints a picture of what being a Christian is meant to be about that I think is really powerful. Because it's a picture of reintegration, of a movement towards wholeness as people, made possible by God's grace in Christ. I find it actually genuinely compelling. I hope you will too. So what I'm going to do in this sermon then is first to, and at at most length, to outline the vision Paul lays out in verses 1 to 2. So we're going to work through those verses slowly. And then what we'll do is we'll put this vision um, in context by contrasting it with what Paul says earlier in Romans about our fallen condition and what God has done to save us from it. Because it's actually when we understand the contrast that the the power of what Paul says in Romans 12 uh, really we can really appreciate it. Does that make sense? All right. Don't worry. The the second and third points actually don't take very long at the end. So if we get to 15 minutes and you're starting to get anxious, just relax. All good. Okay, first then, let's begin by looking at the vision of the Christian life Paul sets out in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. You're probably wondering what that picture is. I just didn't know what to put up, and so I put up... This is um, uh, one of the earliest... Christian paintings in existence. Uh, it's from the early third century, I think, and it's a picture of Jesus telling the paralyzed man to take up his mat and walk. And I thought that vaguely connected to the idea of wholeness. If it's not helpful, just 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 don't worry about it. It's just brown. There we go. So Paul puts out this vision of wholeness. Okay, in these chapters, let's have a look at it. Um, he, he shows us here. This picture of a a whole person whose life and self is oriented in one direction. Here, Let's read it again. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's three parts to this that I want to look at. The first is that the Christian life, according to Paul, is about the offering of the body in worship. Offer your bodies. See, he says it there at the second line there. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The words are all printed in your outlines as well if you want to see them. You know, that's an extraordinary image. Sacrifices normally involve bodies, but dead ones. An animal is killed and then offered. Well, Christians too, Paul says, are to offer a sacrificial body, our own, but not dead, thankfully, but living, alive, and this, Paul says, is your true and proper worship. This is what worship is meant to be and to involve. Now, can we just take a moment to, to kind of register what an amazing way this is to imagine your life as a living sacrifice offered to God in worship? It does mean, amongst other things, that worship is, is not just something you do at church. Right? That's a very common way of using the word worship. And there's nothing wrong with it in a way. We can call what we do here worship. That's fine. But worship, much more basically, is about the whole of life. It's not just a religious thing. It's about a whole of life thing. It is my life, my body, offered to the Lord as a sacrifice. Think what a difference it makes to imagine your body this way. How would it shape what you do with your energy, with your attention, with your hands, with your eyes, with your feet, your ears? How would it shape what you wear and what you eat? I don't mean, I'm not trying to give you kind of new food laws or anything, but I just mean it would make you think about what you, how much and what you spend money on food-wise and who you eat it with. How would it shape what you watch, what you look at, on your phone, on your computer? To be presenting your body as a sacrifice offered to God. How could this shape your sexual activity? How could this help you think about mundane things like sleep and exercise? The Bible's actually quite, it's a bit more interested in sleep than you might think. Uh, Psalm 127 talks about sleep as a gift from the Lord. It's not a kind of downer on insomnia, but it's a, it's a kind of recognition that the bodily, creaturely limits of our lives are actually God's gift to us. Now, there's a lot more we could say here. We could explore any of these lines, and I hope you will think about this. I hope this will give you food for thought, but for now I just want to notice what a profound way this is to think about our task in life, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. You can ask questions about this later on if you want to. The second thing to notice, though, is what Paul says about the mind. I've got to skip back because I forgot to put the slides in the right place. But have a look at there from verse four, uh, verse 2, sorry, third line down. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What we are called to is a transformation of the whole person, body and mind. And it's the mind that leads. Be transformed through the renewing of your mind, says Paul. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, most basically, the renewing of the mind is just about learning to think in new ways. <coughs> it's about having your thinking <coughs> changed and then letting this changed thinking shape your life. In the verses that follow, uh, we're going to look at them next week, Paul actually talks a lot about thinking. How are you going to think about these things? And what he wants here is for his readers' thinking to be shaped by their awareness of what has happened in Jesus Christ, by the gospel and what it means, and he wants that that thinking to rearrange and gradually transform their lives. Specifically, he says, we are to not conform to the pattern of this world. Conforming or being conformed means being shaped by or into the likeness of something. It means gradually falling in step or into the mould of something as the world around us. And that's what happens automatically, you see. The world around us has patterns, moulds, and if we're not paying attention, they will shape our thinking and so shape us. (coughs) This really is happening all the time. Just think about what your mind takes in every day. Every day, it is bombarded with signals, inputs, interpretations, explanations. Most days, for me, there's not a very long space between waking up and starting to drink in words and images and sounds from the world. Often, I, I, I go downstairs, I boil the kettle, and while I'm waiting, I turn my phone on, I do the wordle, and then I look at Twitter or The Economist, and it's like, turning on a tap, and the ideas and the opinions and all the hot takes flow in. When I'm thinking clearly, you know, I don't let myself do this for very long or I don't even do it first. Instead, I begin with the Bible or I try and get there quickly, even if it's for a short time, and I try to let my thinking begin from there. But let me be clear, right? the issue is not just what we think about first, or even what we think about most. I'm not trying to kind of make some hard and fast rule here. The issue, the, m- both of those might be good questions to ask, what, are you, what, what, what comes first and so on, but the real issue is what, what leads our thinking? What leads our thinking? What is shaping our minds? Or to put it differently, what, what kind of anchors our, the way we navigate the world. What we need to think about is how we can ensure that our minds are being renewed by the knowledge of God in Christ so that that knowledge shapes our direction of travel. You know, I find it really striking that Paul's vision for the Christian life is for people to learn to think well. It's it's not. It's, his vision is not for people to be unthinking or, you know, just followers, just just kind of blind, unthinking followers. Actually, the opposite. Paul sees the Christian life as involving a growing, thoughtful deliberateness. It's not about being super clever, can I say? This is not just a vision for really smart people or highly educated people, actually smart and highly educated people can be just as easily conformed to the pattern of this world. Now this is just, it's a vision about a freedom to think differently from the world around us, brought about by a knowledge of what God has done in Christ. How can you ensure, how can you ensure that you are being shaped by the knowledge of the good news of Jesus? And not just by the world around you. What, what do you need to adjust or put in place? What habits do you need to build, cultivate? What do you need to consider? Can I say, I really, really, really hope the preaching of this church will at least help with this. This basically is, is what I want the preaching here to be about. To be transformed by the renewing of our minds. There's one more aspect though of Paul's vision Oh, my clicker's stopped working. There you go. The deep mysteries of this clicker. Um, One more thought, one more thing that Paul talks about, uh, which is that all of this is directed towards action. Then you will be able to test. Have a look at it there on your sheets if you want. The last line, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His, oh, it's working again. Okay, I'll take you back so you can see it. Last night, Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What's going on in this sentence? Right? Test and approve kind of sounds like we stand in judgment over God's will. We, we kind of evaluate God's will, and when it's good, we give him a pat on the back. Well done, God. That was nice. I like what you did there. That's probably not what the apostle has in mind. So what does he mean? I think the primary idea here is actually about our ability to appreciate the goodness of what God commands and calls us to. Paul's train of thought, I think, is that as our minds are renewed, we become able to appreciate God's will for what it is, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We become more able to share God's judgments of things and to see them the way that he sees them almost as if we're being tuned into the same frequency. It's a kind of alignment that is happening here. The Christian life, Paul is saying, involve, involves a growing alignment of our perceptions and evaluations of things, our judgments with what, with, about what is good with, with God's judgments. The renewal of the mind produces a renewal of judgment I don't mean judgment there is in a that's bad sense, although sometimes, but I mean judgment in the sense of our, our kind of evaluations of how things are. Oh yes, we're making judgments all the time. That's good, that's not good. This is a good idea. That kind of evaluative perception. And what Paul's saying is that over time as our minds are renewed, we learn to see the goodness of what God calls us to and we become able to welcome God's way for us as good and good for us. You know, I think this is a really important point to reflect on because I think this is probably a place where a lot of us, myself included, have room to grow. For many folk I talk to, the difficulties they have with Christianity are are mainly kind of moral. The questions they have are mainly kind of moral questions. Aspects of uh, Christian moral teaching, often about sex, but also about other things like authority, or speech, (coughs) these aspects seem really problematic, even damaging. Now, there are a whole set of bigger conversations here that I'm not trying to oversimplify or try to have all at once. And sometimes, let me say, sometimes our discomfort or people's troubles, they show us places at which traditional Christian moral teaching doesn't actually reflect the will of God very well. But I also think that the fact that Paul, Paul sees Christian maturity as involving a kind of alignment between how we see things and how God sees things. And that, that, that shows us, I think, that when we bump up against things we don't like, when we bump up against ideas in the Bible that we think, oh, I don't know if I agree with that, it's at least worth asking ourselves whether that is a clue to ways in which our minds may not yet be properly renewed. Whether the problem may be still that we are being conformed to the pattern of this world in our thinking. I'm not saying it's a simple thing. I'm not saying it's always like that. But that is the question worth asking. Okay, much food for thought there, I think. We can come back to it in questions. We need to move on, though, uh, because, well, here we go interesting so that that, that's a new kind of failure (laughs) (laughs) okay Yong. I have a whole table that this part of the sermon will be difficult if we can't see it I mean I'm if it it is there in the morning service this is why I thought this would work it was fine this morning do you know what? I'm just going to explain it, okay? If it's not there, who cares? What I want to do now is just show you another aspect of what Paul's doing here. Okay? Because in this passage in Romans 12, Paul is actually drawing a contrast with things he says earlier in Romans. Now, I don't expect you to have memorized Romans recently, so, um, whoa, okay. That'll be interesting. Um, oh, Amazing. Amazing, well done, AV guys. Uh, So, I wonder if these work. These work, so I'm just going to use this as well. Just let me explain what's going on here, okay? So chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, our passage, are the counterpoint to how Paul describes the condition of humanity at the beginning of the letter. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes human existence under the power of sin. And what he describes is is a kind of breakdown, a kind of disintegration of body, worship, mind, and judgment. A a, a disintegration that is the the opposite of the integrated whole we see in chapter 12. Let me show you some examples. Okay, so in Romans 1, I've just picked out verses, by the way. This is not the whole text. So Romans 1's on this side. The first thing you see in in Romans 1 is that... um, there's a kind of failure of worship. Although they knew God, writes Paul, and when he says they, he just means human beings. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And he says also, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Paul says human beings are under sin kind of have this kind of chronic inability to get worship right. Uh, we, 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 we kind of know God. We have a natural kind of awareness of God, and yet we, it, it gets distorted and disoriented, and it goes in all sorts of directions. By contrast, in chapter 12, he says, this is your true and proper worship. Worship is restored. Second thing we see in Romans 1 is a kind of failure of mind. Paul writes, they're thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. There's a kind of of failure of thought, of mind. By contrast, in Romans 12, he's talked about, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's also in Romans 1 a, a corresponding failure in body. Therefore God gave them over, in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. By contrast, in Romans 12, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do you see the contrasts? And finally, in Romans 1, Paul describes a failure of judgment, a failure of thinking to action. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. By contrast, Romans 12, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And actually, in the Greek text, it's a bit nerdy, but you'll survive, the contrast is even sharper because the word for they did not think it worthwhile is the same word as he uses for test and approve. Right, so there's this, this same contrast is going on. And so what Paul's doing in chapter 12 is very deliberate. He is saying that the Christian life is about a reversal of the chaos and disintegration of our natural condition under sin. You see, left to our own devices, the Bible says where we go is to a kind of disintegration to disoriented worship that leads to disordered thinking and so corrupts our action. Body, mind, and will flail about in a painful, damaging mess. That's the picture painted at the beginning of Romans. It would take a whole sermon series on the first part of Romans to explain this properly. All I want to notice now is that Paul's vision in chapter 12 stands out all the more with this contrast. Paul sees the Christian life as about wholeness where there was disintegration, about peace and coordination where there was mess. It's a beautiful vision that should be especially hopeful for anybody here, any of us, who do recognize ourselves or parts of ourselves in our lives in these descriptions in Romans 1. The word of God sets before us a powerful, beautiful alternative, a whole life, body, mind, and spirit integrated in worship of God. But how is that possible? How is that possible, actually? If you take this Romans 1 stuff seriously, how is it possible that the vision in Romans 12 could be in reach? The distance between them is vast. What can span that? Well, the answer is in the one phrase from chapter 12 that we haven't yet looked at. And this is where I want to finish. Right at the beginning first line, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. That is the link. That's the link. It's a phrase that sums up the whole journey taken between Romans 1 and Romans 12. The mercy of God. That is what puts this vision within reach what puts it before you. The mercy of God, you see, is what he has done in Jesus Christ. Let me give you a summary of the whole of Romans 1 to 11, basically. Romans 1 and 2 and 3, they, they explain how all people have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory that God calls us to as those who are made in his image. Sure, we get a bunch of things right, but we get a lot of things wrong. And our lives are not what they are meant to be. But God, in chapter 3, Paul says, verse 21, but God, in his great mercy, gave his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect one, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He gave him as as the sufficient offering to deal with sin. And he raised him from the dead so that we might have life in him by the power of the Holy Spirit who joins us to Jesus and to the new life and to the righteousness God has brought into this world through him. And that is what gives us hope. That is what lifts us up. And we do not get that by getting everything right. Paul goes out of his way at great length to say this. You don't receive this by your works, he says, by earning it, by, by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, by kind of just nailing life. That is not how the Christian life works. God doesn't save the people who, who are doing great. No, that doesn't work for anyone, that route, that path of earning your salvation, of, of making your life what it should be. No, Paul says, we receive this purely by God's grace. It is a gift. He gives it to us, for free because he loves us and we receive it not by works but by faith by trusting in the lord jesus christ that is god's mercy his mercy that knows that we are lost and that we cannot get ourselves out of this hole on our own and so goes all the way to us in his son jesus christ to draw us out and lift us up and make us new And that is the mercy of God that puts the vision Paul finally gets to in chapter 12. It puts it before us as something that is not impossible. That is not totally beyond us, pie in the sky, but is actually a real picture for our lives. And the mercy of God doesn't just make this vision in chapter 12 that we've seen possible. It makes it the obvious right thing to shoot for. How can anything else make sense once we have seen the mercy of God? Once we we see the grace of God that He has given us freely in Jesus, how can we want anything other than to give ourselves wholly to Him as as a living sacrifice? So let me just finish, friends, by just saying, come on, come on, this is a great vision. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Take it up. Make it yours. Let it inspire you. Let it be your goal, your vision for life. This is what the Christian life is meant to be about, and it's what your life can be about. Yeah, for sure, we will all stumble, and there will be setbacks, and it will be bumpy, and it won't always look great. But this vision of your body... Offered to the Lord in true worship, of your mind renewed, of a transformation of our perceptions and affections. That is a vision for you because of the mercy of God. So take it, make it your own. Amen. I'll stop there.